Tantamount Season 1 is a true crime podcast on the Washington, D.C. serial killer, the Freeway Phantom. Due to the graphic nature, it is not intended for those under the age of 18. Hello, this is Blaine Pardo. And this is Victoria Hester, co-author to my dad and a best-selling true crime author as well. Sorry it has taken us so long for another episode, but I am the director of nursing and this whole pandemic thing has really eaten into my free time. I'm glad we were able to get back and putting out some content. Me too. It's great to talk about something other than this damned spicy flu. Okay then, welcome to episode 7 of Tantamount Season 1, Profiles of the Freeway Phantom. Up to this point, we have covered the crimes of the Phantom in 1971 and 1972. We talked about how these victims are connected. We explored the, and I'm quoting here, confessions of the Green Vega gang. We also dug into Robert Askins as a suspect. This episode, we are stepping back a bit and looking at the criminal profiles that the authorities have used on these cases. If you are a fan of the Netflix series Mindhunter, you'll get a kick out of this one. For me, I think it's important to frame these early profiles in terms of the years the crimes took place. Remember, profiling really didn't emerge till the 1980s, so there was no model for it, no established precedent for the investigators. There weren't any true experts in this field, though it was starting to emerge in the early 1970s. So where did that leave the police? Well, with a lot of guesswork by local psychiatrists and mental health experts. The authorities went to the local psychiatric hospitals, not so much to get a profile, but to see if any of the doctors had patients that could be the killer. You couldn't do that today, not with the HIPAA laws we have in place. Boy, that's true. And none of these doctors seem to have any kind of training, such as studying past serial killers. That would have helped them frame their thinking. So what you get are fragments of their best guesses. Let me go through some and you'll see what I mean. One doctor, for example, said that the killer should be considered, and I quote here, quite clever. He was likely to have a sociopathic personality disorder and was able to function in society without attracting much attention to himself. Another doctor at the Springfield State Hospital in Sykesville, Maryland, said that the killer was, quote, extremely dangerous, bordering on psychopathic extremes in behavior, end quote. Such a person would exhibit paranoid delusions, possibly triggered by phonetic sounds. This doctor believed that the sounds may trigger an explosion of violence and that the sound that would trigger him was the name Denise. So what he's saying is that the name Denise is what triggered his behavior? Apparently. I see what you mean about these being best guesses. Well, he wasn't alone with the whole Denise connection. A number of doctors interviewed by the Washington, D.C. newspapers called out that name and said the killer had an obsession with girls that had that in their name. Of course, none of them could explain the real question. How would the killer know that these girls had that as their middle name? I mean, this is an age before the internet, social media, etc. So how could they have known? 
The victims all went to different schools. They lived in different parts of the city. Their middle names often weren't used by their parents. So how could the killer have formed that possible connection? It can't. I agree. Anyway, a doctor named Raduskas at the Perkins State Hospital in Jessup, Maryland, said that the killer likely functioned very well in society. He suggested it was a, quote, personality quirk, end quote, that manifested him to opt for strangulation as the means to kill his victims. Calling what the freeway fandom did as a quirk seems a little bit disingenuous to me. It does make you wonder how much information the authorities actually shared with these doctors. If they didn't tell them very much, then their responses might be pretty vague. Well, that's part of the problem. The records we were able to obtain from our confidential sources really don't go into too much depth. One that stood out for me was Dr. Regis Reisenman, a forensic physician from Arlington, Virginia. He suggested that the suspect felt inadequate and or insecure, and that was likely stemming from having a weak or absent male figure in his life and a very strong or dominant mother figure. He said that this would have led him to demonstrating, quote, cowardly traits, end quote. I think I know where you're going to go with this. Yep, it sounds just like Robert Askins. In his analysis, the suspect is paranoid and a schizoid, a likely sadist since he appears to obtain sexual thrills from the use of physical violence. Dr. Reisman didn't rule out that the suspect practiced necrophilia. This is interesting because it doesn't seem to fit the pattern of the freeway phantom that we know of. The doctor believed that the suspect might be under the influence of drugs and that he is possibly a megalomaniac braggart who labors under strong compulsion to kill. In his thinking, the likely suspect is clever with an above-average intelligence. I think the best one they got early on was from a former FBI agent named Walter McLaughlin. He was old-school FBI, but was a pioneer in criminal sexual classification and what would later be known as profiling. He was years ahead of others in this field. He believed the unsub or, or unknown subject was a young Negro male. In his words, and I quote here, this is mostly substantiated with his free and undetected movement in a close-knit neighborhood. He may have had a job or even live in those areas, end quote. In other words, he definitely had familiarity with the streets he hunted on. McLaughlin went on to say the unsub demonstrated a degree of higher learning with at least one or two years of college education. The killer had ready access to an automobile. Based on the note he left on Brenda Woodard, his actions indicate that he harbored and hatred towards women. McLaughlin further theorized that the unsub sought out his victims who appealed to him in a personal manner, possibly linked to his mother, wife, or girlfriend. He didn't see the victims as children at all, simply as females. The name Denise meant nothing. It was simply coincidental that some of the victims shared the name. He believed that the killer had previous brushes with the law, likely being minor incidents. His suggestion to the investigators was to contact the high school English teachers in the area and determine whether any of the students they had in the past used or misused the word tantamount. What adds credibility to this is that he says the name Denise is coincidental. It does. 
Another interesting opinion offered by Dr. Oscar Prado, the Director of Forensic Psychiatry at Springfield State Hospital, kind of ties into this. In his interview with the investigators, he said that he believed the killer was akin to a man that was, quote, going on a hunt, end quote, choosing the area where he chose to operate, where he would find a pool of potential victims who met his mental criteria. In his mind, it was a white male based on mostly because of the fact that the victims were black. Interestingly, he went on to say that if the victims had been white, he would have thought that it was a black suspect. He said that the killer was likely a leg man. The potential suspect would be typical in his appearance, be in his late 20s in terms of age, extremely clever with above average intelligence. He would have likely been an unreliable employee most likely working in some sort of blue-collar capacity. The murderer had not been hospitalized, but if he had, it would have been for a crime related to violence rather than sex. Dr. Prado suggested that the person that they'd be looking for was potentially suffering from a Superman complex with grandiose delusions. He was complex and consumed with a severe hatred of women. Pareto was the only person that the authorities consulted with that suggested that the Phantom was a white man. He had said that if the victims had been white, he would have suggested that the killer would have been black. These were young kids in some cases. I call bullshit on the theory that he chose his victims based on their legs. Clearly, these folks were just taking stabs in the dark. What I found the most compelling was the FBI profile that had been done in the 1990s. We were able to obtain it from a confidential police informant. What makes it stand out is that it was done two decades later when profiling was used as a tool for investigators. The first thing that stands out is Tierra Ann Bryant was included in this profile. The Washington, D.C. and Prince George's County had always excluded her from the Freeway Phantom murders. For reasons we covered earlier in these podcasts, we think that she is also a part of the Freeway Phantom crimes, and clearly the FBI did as well. From a victimology perspective, the FBI highlights that the victims were essentially at a low risk of being the targets of violent crimes. What have made them more susceptible was their age and their naivete. Combined with being alone at night and outdoors increased their risk factors. Their common denominator was also being adolescent black females alone at the time of their initial contact with their killer in highly populated areas. The FBI concluded that their killer was not someone that they knew, but actually a stranger. The FBI determined that the nature by which the victims were killed, the depositing of their bodies, and the fact that they had no relation to their attacker, all to point, and I quote here, our conclusion that these homicides were perpetrated by the same assailant. The offender offset his risk somewhat by approaching the older victims later at night. His approach to his prey was not to apply immediate physical force. The lack of the defensive wounds, other than Brenda Woodard, seemed to suggest that for at least a time the victims were willing to be in the company of the offender. Either they did not perceive him to be an immediate threat, or he was able to somehow gain confidence and control of his victims by fear and the threat of the immediate or and serious bodily harm. More likely, it is suggested that the offender used a combination of the two. His approach to the victims may not have even been perceived by them as an immediate threat, yet once he had them alone, he was able to dominate and control them by the display and threat of a weapon, possibly a knife. 
with the younger victims, the display of the weapon may not have been even necessary as they could have been intimidated by his age, size, or verbal threats. The FBI hit on other points that stand out to me. They said that the Phantom's contacts with his victims was opportunistic. The victims were out alone at night, walking, not necessarily following a standard pattern. Some were known to have accepted rides from strangers. The killer would have used his automobile to abduct the victims. He may have simply used his car and offered a ride as part of the initial contact with them. Of course, according to the FBI, and I'm quoting here, this does not preclude the possibility he was driving around looking for potential victims, end quote, the profile highlights. Another key piece they surfaced in the profile was the offender reduced the risk of having the bodies connected to him. If confronted near their disposal areas, he could have the same alibi as thousands of other travelers. I was just traveling down the road. This procedure offset the offender's risk of being seen in the short amount of time it took him to dump the bodies. They added, he essentially removed the, any chance of being identified by killing the only witnesses he believed to exist, the victims. The Bureau believed the investigators were dealing with a black male suspect. This is substantiated by the finding of negroid headed hairs on many of the victims and the racial makeup of the neighborhoods where the victims were first approached and abducted. According to the FBI profile, the killer was likely between the ages of 27 and 32 years of age. This was arrived at by examining the ages of the victims, the degree of trauma inflicted, the amount of control the killer had over his victims, and, to a lesser degree, the willingness of the victims to initially be in the presence of their killer during their first contact. The FBI admits, though, that the age of the killer was difficult to assess. It proved difficult for them to compare the chronological and emotional age of the freeway phantom. This estimate relates to the suspected chronological age. However, no suspect should have been eliminated based on the age alone. The murderer was smart, possessing a high school education and likely a higher education such as a college degree. The killer most likely held down a full-time job, according to the FBI. All of his victims were confronted after what would be considered normal working hours. Their bodies were all disposed of at late at night or early in the morning. The killer never demonstrated a desire to rob his victims. Everyone he was picking up was too young to have any money of consequence on them. The FBI believed that he was working as a delivery man, a postal worker, a medical assistant, a role in security, the military, or even possibly in recreation. The Freeway Phantom is able to have relationships with people, even women, but likely does not have the skills to maintain, and I quote here, healthy relationships. The FBI believes he is single. He either lives alone or with an older, significant female. He follows his crimes in the media, hence having Brenda Woodard write a note that was found on her body. The FBI acknowledged that the killer owned his own vehicle, a late model car, and he kept it well maintained. The Freeway Phantom was not a drinker or a drug abuser, at least during the times of the commissions of his crimes. His control obsession would not have allowed it. The use of such substances would have lowered his inhibitions and possibly ruined the experience he felt. As an investigator and an author, when I read that profile, it was pretty chilling to me. You get a mental picture of the killer. Almost all the profiles, even the quirky ones early on, all point to one thing, that this is a smart guy. 
According to the FBI profile, he is able to blend in well with the community. This guy is all about control of his victims and of himself. I remember reading the profile we obtained that the Phantom was most likely intimidated by women his own age or older. This is why he chose younger women as targets. They were easier to control and allowed him to act on his disdain for the opposite sex. They went on to say that if the murderer did have an arrest record, it would probably include, and I quote, vice-related offenses such as solicitation for prostitution or assault on women, end quote. So for me, this was just another arrow pointing directly at Robert Askins. I have to agree with you on that. He also had no father figure. He was raised alone by his aunt and his mother. Listen to this from the report. The offender feels no remorse or guilt as to him killing the victims and that had no consequence. His only concern was that he may have been seen with the victims. Once he became assured that he was not a suspect, he would have felt safe. The FBI explored his depositing of the victims as well. When done with the murders and disposing of his victims, he went home or to another safe place. There was little on him physically in the way of evidence that would have linked him to the crimes. They had an interesting section on why it was such a long period of time between Brenda Woodard and Diane Williams. There was two possibilities for the gap, according to the FBI. One, after the resistance he had experienced with Brenda Woodard, he may have had, quote, some difficulty and retreated to his fantasies of the past killings, end quote, rather than return to his hunting patterns. Her fighting back against him ruined the experience for him or even scared him that he could not maintain control anymore. The other possibility was that he had moved on, been institutionalized or jailed, or even left the area. When he was trolling for Diane Williams, he returned to the same area where Spinks and Johnson had lived, returning to his old stalking grounds. What stands out to me is that this is probably the most up-to-date victim-based profile out there on the killer. It's certainly the first one that was done with any knowledge of how serial killers operated. Even so, from the 1990s, it is slightly dated. I remember reading the one portion worth repeating here. Consideration must be given as to why the series of murders stopped. Based on research conducted by the NCAVC, which is the National Center for Analysis of Violent Crime, this type of offender does not stop because he wants to. The offender has either died, been incarcerated in an institution of some kind, or has moved on from the area. If the offender has moved, it's likely that the new jurisdiction is experiencing similar murders of similar victims. Of course, when this was written, we didn't have information on the Green River Killer or BTK, where there was instances where serial killers actually stopped. True. At the time, they thought that he was dead, moved on, or in jail. Now we know more about the minds of serial killers. They can stop due to changes in their lives or a dangerous brush with law enforcement. It's also important to note that the profile doesn't solve the case all on its own. It's a framework that helps investigators narrow potential suspects. The FBI profilers were clear to the investigators, quote, don't rule out a suspect because he doesn't 100% fit the profile, end quote. And in this case, the profile still has not generated the desired outcome, which would be the arrest. For me, this makes me settle on a few things. First, this is a smart killer, smarter than the average. Secondly, he is black. These are not racially motivated crimes. Third, 
The killer has some deep-rooted mommy issues. That's where his issues with women come into play. I don't disagree. He also has a very good knowledge of the areas where he's picking up his victims and where he's dumping his bodies. All this leads us to take a look at the geography of these sites. We can get closer to the killer with an in-depth look at geographic profiling, narrowing our search for the killer even more. I was toying with jumping into it here, but I really think it deserves an episode all on its own. I agree. In the next episode of Tantamount, we dive into the intriguing area of geographic profiling that was done on the case in 2006 and where it leads us. Join us for Episode 8, The Phantom of St. Ease. Tantamount is based on the book by the same name written by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. It is available from Wild Blue Press on Amazon.com. You can go to the author's blog at blainepardo.wordpress.com for additional information on these episodes. The Freeway Phantom is an unsolved case. All suspects named in this podcast are presumed innocent until proven guilty. If you have information that could help authorities, please call the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department at 202-727-9099 or via email at unsolved.murder@ dc.gov. Tantamount is written and produced by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. Our music was written and performed by Ed Miller. Production assistance provided by Cindy Pardo.